Hello and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you a little bit of the more scandalous and darker side of history, especially this month in October. We're bringing you episodes where we sort of uh, go behind the curtain, talk about some of the spookier, scarier, darker sides of history. And I think that this is the perfect topic to take something that on its surface seems sort of innocuous and uh, very clean cut and wholesome and actually dig into uh, all the dark sides of it. So uh, I'm Becca and I'm joined today by Rebecca. And uh, Rebecca, you want to tell everybody what we're going to talk about today? Yes, uh, we're going to talk about Christopher Columbus in advance of Columbus Day. So yeah, when we were like plotting out this month and talking about like scandalous stories and spooky stories and deaths and things we wanted to do for October, you brought up Columbus. And at first I was like, it feels like an odd fit. But when the more you talked about it, the more I was like, this is actually perfect for this time of year. Because I think that even with the the commentary and conversations we're having in the last few years about Columbus, I still think the average person isn't aware of what's myth and what's fact with Christopher yes. Columbus. So I'm really excited to have you dig in on this. Yes, I am really excited. Columbus is um, so kind of interesting and I'm ready. I have my uh, Howard Zinn ready. I have lies my teacher told me. I am, I have, have prepped and ready to go. One of my like literally top 10 favorite like trivia facts locked and loaded that I'll, I'll deploy at the end of the episode. I'm so excited. Um, so I'm ready to talk some Columbus in advance of Columbus Day. Um, and so if you're listening to this podcast, we should do a little like spoiler alert here. If you're listening to this podcast and for some reason you think Columbus is a hero and you want to maintain that belief, <laughs> this might not be the pod for you. Um, Columbus is not a hero. Uh, he is just not, um, he, Christopher Columbus, there's a lot of myths about him and many of them are not his fault, but many of them are, um, you mean he didn't discover America? This is one of the things that drives me the most insane. You can't discover something that's already there, that people already live there. It's not possible. He did not discover anything. You no. also don't discover things that other explorers have already been to. Also that, yes. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that on another layer of that. It's like if, if, yes. if other people have traveled to and put their foot on that place, it's been discovered, bud. Yeah, it's, you, it's been discovered. It's, yeah. People seemed to have known something was there. Um, also, uh, you can't. It's also like super white supremacist and sort of European centered to say that he discovered something with literally millions of people living there who were not white. And it has this whole, like a lot of the Columbus story has smacks of this whole like European centric worldview where, you know, we're smart and everybody else is not. And that's just not true. So a couple of early easy myths to dispel. We already talked about that he didn't discover anything. Uh, he also did not, no thinking person believed that the world was flat. 
that was made up out of whole cloth in the 1800s by Washington Irving because it seemed fun and it rhymed. And that's where we get the flat earth myth. Uh, We have known since literally Aristotle that the world is round. Now, Columbus, I do, it does not seem he realized the world was as big as it is. I think he thought that it was a lot smaller, but anybody who looks at the horizon (laughs) and it doesn't go on forever can tell you that the world is not flat. So that one is also not, um, at all a thing. He did not seem to be aware, Columbus did not, that there was a landmass in between Europe and Asia. He really did not seem to be aware that um, he was, he thought the earth was much smaller. He thought that the ocean would lead him directly to India. And uh, it seems like to the end of his life, There's a rumor that he didn't realize that he had discovered something new. That's also not true. He knew uh, that he had discovered a new continent. Uh, He could clearly tell that the people he was encountering once he got here were not, in fact, Indians. Um, So there is that. So that's kind of to start with a bunch of Columbus myths and... The other thing that I would like to mention is we hold Columbus up as a hero in the United States. He did not know we were here. He never came to the U.S., what is now our territory, not even close. The closest he got was Jamaica, and that was by accident. He had no idea. If we're going to start talking about explorers who explored what is now the United States, Ponce de Leon, John Cabot, Samuel Champlain... Hernan Cortez, there's a few others, but Columbus, not one of them. He did not come anywhere close to what we now know as the United States. So that's also, uh, he didn't know we were here. I mean, we weren't here. The U.S. wasn't, didn't exist yet, obviously, but he didn't know the landmass was here either. This continent, um, this, this part of North America was here. Right. <laughs> So let's let's see what did, what did Columbus actually do? What's what's the breakdown of his his actual places he ends up? So Columbus is there's a lot of myths or a lot of uncertainty surrounding his sort of early years. So he's generally supposed to be from Italy, but there actually is not as much evidence of that as you'd think. Um, there's several of his like biographers who spend their whole lives studying him. There's the evidence is very scanty either way. There's evidence he was from Italy, but there's also evidence that he wasn't. And it is very clear that he could not write in Italian, which does not necessarily mean he wasn't from Italy, but it also doesn't really speak to uh, his, because he could write in Spanish and he could write in Portuguese and he could write in Castilian. Like he actually spoke several languages. The fact that Italian was not one that he could write is not... Evidence that he wasn't from Italy, but it's also not really, you know, suggestive that he was. Um, We don't know where he comes from as far as his parentage. The rumor is that he's kind of poor, but there's no substantiation for that either. Uh, And he gets it in his head that he wants to kind of be an explorer. And there's this idea, I think this temptation to see Columbus is doing this for the glory of it. Like he wants to explore stuff and see new worlds. But he really wanted the money 
Like, let's get down to brass tacks. He really was all about, you know, is there money in this for him? Uh, he was, um, he approached the Portuguese first since they were, they had had Prince Henry the Navigator. They had a very strong naval tradition and the Portuguese king was like, yeah, no, I don't think I'm going to throw all kinds of money at you to take this really strange voyage that you have in mind. I think I'd rather spend that money on actually improving the lives of my people. So Columbus and his brothers then go to England gets the same um, treatment from Henry VII in England, and then he goes to Spain. And he basically approaches Spain at a really interesting moment in Spanish history. Spain has a queen, Queen Isabella. And it's always said Ferdinand and Isabella, but the truth is it should have been Isabella and Ferdinand. She was the power behind the throne. She was kind of a badass, and her husband was just kind of there. Um, and they had just driven the um, the Moors, the Muslims, out of Spain. They had the Reconquista. They had conquered all of um, Spain, uh, united under Catholic rule, and they were in the midst of starting something that has gone down in history as the Inquisition. So they're super Catholic. They got a lot of money, and he approaches her and says, hey, how about... I take some ships and you give me a lot of money and I will go over and see if there's something, you know, over there to be had. And Isabella's like, well, you know, why not? I don't have anything else to do with all this money, I guess. Um, Isabella figures that if he fails, which is pretty likely, she's only given him three ships. Eh, you know, he'll never be seen or heard from again. So that's good. Like he won't be around to tell her she made a mistake. And if he succeeds, money. So it's kind of a win-win. Money, trade routes, all kinds trade of potential. Routes. Yes, there might be gold. There might be who knows what over there. They might be rich beyond their wildest dreams. It could, it could really work out. And this is like the one get-rich-quick scheme in history that, like, really did work. He, um, Isabella, his deal with Queen Isabella was that he got some titles, like he got like total control. He was going to get to be viceroy. He was going to get to like appoint the colonial governorship because obviously once you go wherever you're exploring, you're going to take over and who cares what the people who actually live there, uh, what kind of governmental structure they have. Obviously the Spanish are going to be coming to town and they are going to be taking over hardcore. So Columbus is going to get to be viceroy, his brothers of which he has two, uh, and at least one of his sons are going to be like in the ruling hierarchy. And the other thing that she promises him, and this is really big, she promises that he gets like 10% of all monies recovered. So anything they get, he gets a tenth of it, which is a lot of potential upside for Christopher Columbus. And so he takes off, and as everybody knows, the sort of rhyme that we were taught in school in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He sails with three ships. Becca, what three ships are they? The Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. He sails in August. It takes about two months. One of these little subplots that I love is um, Columbus is traveling on the Santa Maria, which is a slightly bigger ship, and he claims to see land... Um, one of the crew members on another ship claims to see land on uh, a mo the morning of October 13th. He They send off cannons because these ships are not next to each other. They're, they can see each other, but they're not shouting distance. And so they shoot off cannon uh, to let 
all the other ship, the both of the other ships know that they have spotted land. And Columbus says, yeah, I spotted land last night. So October 12th, which is why obviously Columbus Day is right around now. And so basically Columbus had promised a reward. He'd promised like a gold coin of like 10 whatevers uh, to the first person to spot land. And so this guy thought he was going to get all this money because it was a decent chunk of change. And Columbus being Columbus was like, no, no, no. I, you might've thought you saw land, but I actually saw it first last night. So obviously I get to keep my money. So right off the bat, Columbus is a bad, bad guy. He gets to uh, what he very quickly discovers is not the Indies. He realizes that he's in somewhere new fairly quickly. um, And he um, is going to, all of the men sort of get out of the ships and they encounter the natives in the area, uh, mostly the Arawaks and the Tainos. And of course, they don't speak Spanish and the Spanish don't speak their language. And they manage eventually to communicate. And at first, the natives were pretty welcoming. That ends really quickly when it's pretty clear that Columbus doesn't really want to be their friend. He demands gold immediately and I always think in this moment about you imagine like you're some native person on this island and the island that he discovers he renames because of course he does Uh, he names it Hispaniola which means little Spain it's now the island where Haiti and the Dominican Republic are and you're doing your thing fishing or whatever you do normally and you see these big three ships that you've never seen before. And all these guys dressed in weird clothing start tumbling out of these ships. They speak a weird language that you don't understand. And they start demanding things. And not only do they demand gold, but because they're coming from the Spanish Catholics, they also are going to demand that you and all of your friends and everybody in your village start immediately adhering to their Catholicism. So you have to convert, you have to promise to follow Jesus Christ, and you're like, who are you people and why are you here? So that's like basically day one. And it gets worse. Um, it really, he, Columbus's first voyage is the one that everybody knows about. Um, he takes about 25 um, native persons uh, back in chains to Spain. Uh, Most of them die en route. He gets back to Spain with about seven of them. He brings some gold to the queen and he is received in great splendor in Spain. There's basically this triumphal parade and everybody's excited and this has been a success. And Queen Isabella's like, oh my gosh, you made it back. This is great. And there's some gold too. Great. And there's some gold too. And they have these people who look like this and they do whatever you tell them if you whip them hard enough. And so Queen Isabella tells Columbus, okay, well, seems like there's some gold and there's potential here. She says, look, we're going to outfit you to go back to this new place. But she tells him two things. She says, first of all, be nice to people, essentially. She's Catholic and she wants to convert all of these. This is a great choice, you know, um, sort of a target rich environment for conversion. But she does not want, she doesn't want him to be mean about it. She wants him to sort of gently persuade rather than, you know, force people. I'm just going to say that's just such a like, like a female perspective on leadership. Like instead of coercion, cooperation, like be nice about it. Like that's what happens when you have women in charge. It really does. And she, I mean, I think she knows that like, 
you may there might be some bumps in the road, but she is definitely not countenancing atrocity. She really wants him to sort of behave himself. And she gives him 17 ships and he sails a year later in 17, uh, 1493. So the, there has been an amendment. It's the second voyage of Columbus's that is really the important one. That's the one that starts something called the Columbian Exchange, which we'll talk about in a minute. And the second voyage is when it's very clear that they've come to stay. They come with 17 ships. They come for gold. They come for... Um, basically all manner of riches and they come and they want to ship uh, the other purpose of the 17 ships is to slip uh, ship slaves back uh, to Spain. And so the, the sort of ditty that we all know is that in, you know, 1492 Columbus sealed the ocean blue, but the amendment to that is in 1493 Columbus stole everything he could see, which is kind of true. So the second voyage is really the one that's sort of much more, um, impactful, even if we don't know about it uh, as well. And the reason is because Columbus is going to do a couple of things. First of all, it's very clear that he's going to set up a colony. He wants to set up a permanent sort of um, a permanent colony in the this new world. And he's going to leave his brothers in charge, which is a very bad idea. And he's going to ship hundreds, literally hundreds of uh, natives back to Spain, literally in chains. And he's not particularly nice to the ones he leaves behind either. So the Columbian Exchange does a couple of things. The first sort of most obvious effect of the Columbian Exchange is it starts the transatlantic slave trade, which is going to continue for over 300 years and is still a great stain on what has what becomes of the new world and it affects the new world in ways that are still we're still feeling to this day it also he's going to set up a permanent colony there he is going to uh, basically enslave the existing population on these islands and force them to search for gold he's going to use basically every course of measure he can including cutting off ears and hands of people who refuse to do what he wants them to do uh there's a sexual component to this as well he's going to enslave a lot of these uh sort of native women he's going to give them as gifts uh and there is a document in columbus's own hand about how girls as young as nine and ten are going to be used uh for the pleasure of uh the spanish conquistadors so this is sort of where we get the idea that Trump, Columbus is really a trash human being. He not only does he support, he participates in all of this really terrible um, humanitarian uh, sort of excesses and atrocities. He is um, basically at the forefront of all of this, and it's all essentially to make him money. That's his ultimate goal. He wants power, sure, but he really wants to make a lot of money. And he is he does a third voyage, and by his third voyage, he's getting a little out of control. His brothers run the colony and his son as well with the sort of same lack of oversight. I think we could say uh, that Columbus does. And they're really interested, again, in their own pocketbooks. And um, he, 
they are again very cruel and there are multiple reports that get back to Spain that go back to the Queen that Columbus has kind of gone off the rails and there would have been obviously the the native people would have complained if a they spoke Spanish or b the Spanish would have listened in any way but the Spanish would not have cared about the natives complaining what really interests Queen Isabella and what really is going to piss her off is that Columbus's men, Spanish men, are complaining about how cruel he is. He's cruel not only to the native people, he's cruel to them as well. And Queen Isabella uh, basically, you know, on the third voyage, she keeps him on kind of a short leash. He is eventually going to be arrested on his third voyage and brought back to Spain himself in leg irons. So he's brought back as a prisoner after his third voyage. And he's stripped of several of his titles. This whole idea that he's going to get 10% of any monies claimed is taken from him. Uh, So he's going to be basically outcast, particularly Queen Isabella is particularly not a fan of all this cruelty. She tells him very clearly, I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I told you to behave yourself and you did not. And he apparently like tries to mansplain to her about how, well, you know, things are just the way that they are and you have to be on the ground to see it. And she essentially orders him out of her sight because again, she's not here for his mansplaining and she's a badass. Um, Queen Isabel is problematic for a number of reasons, but in this particular instance, dealing with Columbus, we're going to just consider that she's pretty cool. Yeah, dealing with Columbus, and I have to say, Isabella sort of with that and her feeling of his starting this slave trade is interesting too, where she sort of has this, um, especially towards the end of her life, this kind of hesitation might be the way to put it with slavery and the slave trade. Uh, I think she's much more interested in just converting everybody to Catholicism as opposed to enslaving them in a more traditional sense. Right. Um, And it really is, um, what really is important about Columbus is, is the forces that he unleashes in the new world. He really is, I mean, Haiti to this day is suffering the, you can make a uh, compelling argument this Haiti to this day is celebrating the, uh, still suffering the after effects of Columbus's treatment you know it's going to echo for five centuries down you know this the culture clash uh, it's not it's you know co- sort of critical to understanding this is the jumping off point for a lot of uh, Europeans coming to the new world more and more often Columbus was not the first but he also, there was a lot of people that came right after him. So there had been Viking raids uh, here and there. There had been a few European sort of foyers up into the north of Canada. But Columbus is the first and he's going to be very quickly followed by a bunch of other people. And this the tone that he sets with this is going to continue. There's a lot of other people who are going to use him as sort of a role model, like John Smith, points to Columbus when he gets to um, Jamestown in Virginia and says, okay, well, this is obviously how Columbus dealt with the native peoples. This is how I'm going to deal with the native peoples. And so it's- And we have guns and they don't have guns. So that makes it really easy for us. Right. I mean, and that's one of the things Columbus writes is he notes that they don't know what the firearms are and they don't have any. And Columbus is like, so this is going to make it really easy. Right, we've got guns and they don't. And so the guns are helpful because there's obviously a lot fewer of the Spanish than the natives because there's thousands of them. And the so this is going to set the tone in a very significant way. The other thing that the Columbian Exchange does 
that Columbus doesn't really know about, and in fairness, you can't quite blame him for this, although you want to, um, are two other things. First of all, the Europeans are going to bring with them disease, which is not something that they understand, uh, but diseases for which the Native Americans have absolutely no immunity and various European diseases, smallpox, uh, etc., sort of run rampant throughout uh, the not only Hispaniola, but all of the New World, killing off thousands, millions of Native Americans. And particularly in Hispaniola, within 30 years there, they have basically decimated the entire Native population. Uh, and they are down to just a few uh, thousand people after, uh, after what had been millions. And the last thing about the Columbian Exchange is you're going to start seeing Columbus bring over European crops and bring American crops back to Europe. So this sort of cross-pollination of two completely different ecosystems. And what that's going to, again, mushroom and sort of snowball uh, for a long time. For example, potatoes come from the New World. They are brought back to um, uh, the European continent. And if you're Irish and you've ever heard of the potato famine, this is a direct result of Columbus. The reason being, when they bring over the potato, they only bring like one variety of potatoes. It's genetically very weak and is going to be sort of subject to failure, which is what happens in Ireland. So they don't understand any of this stuff. They just know that they're bringing goods back and forth. These are unintentional consequences. <laughs> Unintended consequences that continue to literally the present day. So this is really like Columbus is one of those people. I read this when I was doing research for this, that like Christ, a lot of what he has done has been sort of embroidered and sort of added. And there's a lot of myths around it. But he's so important that there's a before and an after. Like, just like Christ, there's B.C. and then there's A.D. With Columbus, there's the before the Columbian Exchange and there's after. So that's kind of how important he is. He starts this dialogue and this um, sort of cross-cultural uh, exchange that has continued to this day. So what also interests me in this story is one, of course, like pulling that curtain back and seeing really the truly terrible treatment, the terrible things he does in the way that he lets this sort of power go to his head. But then it's sort of the question mark of like, then why do we in the United States, a place that Columbus never went, never even close to, why are we so obsessed with him? And it's sort of the myth making of Columbus and the legacy of Columbus that I found most fascinating when you were like, we're going to do this as a podcast topic, because I've always wondered that a little bit, just like, why? Why is why do we have somewhere in the ballpark of over 150 statues to Columbus in the United States? Why do we have over 50 places that are named for him? Why do we have Columbus Day as a holiday? You know, we don't really have holidays to non-presidents, and yet we have one to Christopher Columbus. Um, why do Italian Americans hold him up when he might not have even really been Italian? There's like all these questions, right? And and so that's what I was sort of digging into for this episode. And I find it interesting that it really is the American Revolution era where we start to get Columbus the myth. Uh, and it's sort of traced to Phyllis Wheatley, who was a young, freed African-American teenager. She's really a teenager during the American Revolution. And she writes a poem and she sends it to George Washington, and it's called Columbia. Now, we've seen Columbia, this allegory for Columbus and the discovery of the New World prior to 1776, but, you know, this young young woman sending this poem to the most venerated general 
uh, of the Continental Army uh, makes it kind of go a little viral and it starts getting reprinted and we start seeing poems and songs and essays. So right at the time our nation is being founded, we then start weaving in this representation of Columbus, which I find really fascinating because up to that point, you don't hear a lot of talk of Columbus. If you look at kind of colonial America, there's not a lot. Uh, so there's that moment. And then you mentioned him briefly, but there's Washington Irving. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, the, the moment where we really start to see Columbus become part of, like, the education of children in America. I think Columbus is easy. And I feel like that's what, first of all, it also rhymes. 1492, Columbus, Sail the Ocean Blue. Like, it rhymes. It's very lovely. And that part is true. 1492, the ocean is blue. He sailed. I mean, that's, you know. Uh, everything else is kind of embellished, but that word is true. And I feel like he's pretty easy. I also feel like there's, it, he's just this whole, the whole mythos of Columbus basically in every possible way is going to emphasize the idea that Europeans are smart and deserve to take over the world and that it's an inevitable progression that we would do, that Europeans would do so. And he sort of exemplifies this idea. You know, if you ever see pictures of Columbus, and this is something I talk about with a lot of exploration. You can talk about this with Peter Minuet in, um, in New York. But you ever see pictures of Columbus greeting, you know, these sort of mythologized paintings of Columbus greeting the Native Americans. They're always, the Spanish are always dressed like conquistadors and the natives are in like a loincloth. And either one of those, like it's just a ridiculous idea because you're in the Caribbean, the, the most likely the Spanish conquistadors in all of their heavy armor are probably sweating to death. So it's, but it's this whole myth of, you know, our, the European takeover of the Americas was inevitable because we were civilized and the Native Americans were not. And it's just And there were so... only about 6 million indigenous people in the Americas in 1492. Surely they didn't have any meaningful civilization or culture and needed to be colonized. 6 million people. 60 Go. million. That's the estimate. 60, 60 million, million. If you include North, South, and the Caribbean. Yes. Um, there's that, so that is honestly kind of a conservative estimate because, of course, the documentation is hard. But yeah, you're right. This idea that these, these Europeans bring, and I think as Americans, Columbus is so easy, like right at the point of the revolution where we're breaking free, he represents new worlds and new expo uh, exploration. Then you have Washington Irving, Irving in the 1820s with this book and all the fake stuff about, you know, all these fake myths about Columbus, but it really embodies this idea of manifest destiny, which is going to be huge, right? We have mm -hmm. um, the exploration of the West after the Louisiana Purchase, and we have people moving. And then um, at the next point that we sort of see a lot of Columbus myth building, which is sort of the late 1800s, 1890s into the early 1900s, it's the dawn of the new century. And so anytime in America, we sort of have the right moment, Columbus is so easy to latch on to. And he's also, particularly the sort of later iteration of Columbus worship starts because people realize that in the 1880s, people realize that the 400th anniversary of his voyage is coming up in 1892. And so that sort of spurs this sort of next generation of Columbus worship. But at that time, you also get Italians did not always have the easiest track in the United States. Their Italians were discriminated against for a long time. And they sort of latch on to Columbus as may or may not have been from Italy and sort of promote him. And it's because the Italians have recently been sort of accepted in a broader society 
society, they want a hero that they can point to. And the Knights of Columbus, again, based on him, are going to basically eventually pressure Franklin Roosevelt to declare Columbus Day uh, a holiday. And I'm going to jump in with a little bit of trivia. Do you know the U.S. states that has the most statues and busts and memorials to Columbus? I don't. Is it Ohio? No. No. It's New Jersey, baby. Italian immigrants. And and they have the most chapters of Knights of Columbus. They do. That's, I didn't yeah. know. Yeah. So New Jersey. So it, it makes a lot of sense. You start, you start thinking about where are Italian immigrants settling? Where are they organizing? And of course, like you said, they're, they're latching on to this, this icon and this hero, which helps legitimize them and helps to perhaps ease that immigration uh, assimilation. Mm-hmm. But naturally, even today, um, even though we, we now have seen lots of other states add or take down, I guess, Columbus statues, New Jersey still is far and away. Yes, even there's, there's even an episode about the Sopranos. It's about... widely considered the worst episode of one of the greatest <laughs> TV shows ever, The Sopranos. I just did a Sopranos rewatch during this pandemic. And let me tell you, that Christopher Columbus episode is hard to watch. No offense, Michael Imperioli, who wrote it. I'm a huge fan, if you're listening. But that one is a, whew, a doozy. And it so, yeah, Columbus just kind of gets... I think shoehorned in, we can sort of project a lot of things onto him. And in that way, he sort of fills this hero worship idea that we need. But the problem is there's a lot of really great Italians and there's a lot of really great Italians with an American connection that are better than Columbus because they didn't commit genocide and rape. So I would suggest that we find a new hero for Italians, not Columbus. That's I, he's, Really terrible, guys. Um, to close the loop on his story, after his third voyage, he gets sent back to Spain and is kind of persona non grata around court. Like, Isabella is by this time pretty ill and she's going to die. And her husband, not the power behind the throne, Ferdinand, he was um, kind of lost without his wife. And he, I think details were not his thing and so columbus asked to go back for a fourth time and ferdinand somehow was just like oh, okay go that's fine just leave and so columbus goes back for a fourth voyage and by this time he's older he's suffering from arthritis his ship gets blown off course we think to jamaica and he's like stranded there for about a year and he eventually makes it back to spain and dies in spain um and he does not seem to have he doesn't really seem to have benefited particularly materially well from this like he did okay for a while but then Fernanda Isabella like stripped all of his um, wealth from him so he doesn't actually get uh, I think the sort of money that he had hoped for and the other thing that I think is worth mentioning with Columbus there's a guy who goes with him on his first voyage, a guy named Bartolome de las Casas, who was originally like, hey, I'm going to grab some land and get some money and some wealth and it's going to be really great. And then he gets to Hispaniola and sees how terribly Columbus and his brothers are treating everybody. And de las Casas says, "Mm, no, I'm out. This is bad. And so he writes this firsthand account, which is harrowing even 500 years later. It's really insane about how terrible Columbus was, how poorly he treated literally everybody. And just the, a lot of what we know about Columbus is going to come, not all of what we know, but a lot of what we know about Columbus is going to come from De Las Casas, uh, who is, you know, 
Dallas Casas basically is the guy who's going to say to future historians, like, no, you can't ignore this. This is really this genocide. This atrocity was really, really terrible. In fact, De Las Casas is still uh, influential. Simon Bolivar is going to use his writings as justification for uh, liberating Latin America. He's still going to be, there are people who believe that instead of Columbus Day, we should celebrate Bartolomeo De Las Casas. So he's kind of a big uh, deal. Um, Columbus, though, we should get rid of Columbus Day. And uh, I think many of you listening already know that quite a number of cities and states have uh, turned Columbus Day into Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, which I think is certainly a much more fitting tribute. I would also just love to see, I mean, I don't know, maybe you're of the mind that there's too many holidays out there. Uh, I would like to see more non-presidential holidays, yes. but to somebody else besides Christopher Columbus. Right. That's my thing about Columbus. Like, we have days off we don't even have lincoln and washington they don't even have their own day off anymore we have rude. president's day so other than martin luther king jr columbus is the only person who where's my that. william howard taft day i know right <laughs> um and so i feel like if we're not going to give abraham lincoln and george washington their own days off christopher columbus shouldn't get one either uh we there are plenty of other people also, there's this whole other category of human called women, and we can find some of them and have them the holiday, give them a holiday. You're getting crazy now. I'm getting crazy. This podcast is getting radical. Out of control. So anyway, Indigenous People's Day is really great, and we should change Columbus Day to that. But we should also, I am pro-holiday. I think we should have more of them. Yeah, we, we need to have more federal more holidays. holidays. Agreed. I, yeah. Why, why do we need Election Day also? But that's a whole other fight we're not going to get into. Also, before we move on, um, I do want to deploy my, my factoid. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. So one of the titles that Queen Isabella bestows on Columbus is Admiral of the Ocean Seas, which is legitimately one of the best titles I've ever heard. And unlike his other titles, this one is hereditary. And once she gave it to him, like, she takes back most of his titles. But this one, once she gave it to him, she didn't take it back. And so it's hereditary, which means that somewhere in Spain, in this exact moment, in the year of our Lord 2020, in the moment that you are listening to this, Columbus's 18th great-grandson is running around as Admiral of the Ocean Seas. And, and is that, like, all of the Ocean Seas? Like, does she the have the jurisdiction seas. for that? All of them. And I am not, this is admittedly not my area of expertise, but I am fairly certain that a title like that would be really, really, really good on the dating scene. Like, can you imagine being at a bar and be like, hey, baby, I'm Admiral of the Ocean Seas. You know, I feel like that does, that works really well. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's true. Uh, there is an Admiral. And I did, she wasn't specific about which Ocean Seas. And Oceans and Seas are not the same thing. So is it both? It's, it's all unclear. of the above, but anything that's water. All of the above, yeah. So it's a pretty rad title. That's all. I'm that's amazing. Yes. I do want to mention uh, there are a couple places to see the Columbus connection in Washington, D.C. I want to mention that there is, first and foremost, a statue to Queen Isabella in Washington, D.C., um, not too far from the National Mall. In fact, just off of the mall at Constitution and 17th Street Northwest, right outside of the American, of the Organization of American States Building. There is a really, it's kind of funky. It was done in 1966. I wouldn't call it abstract, but it's a little, it's not like a photo real kind of sculpture. It's a little bit more um, artistic. 
Olympic. Uh, but I really love that statue of Queen Isabella. She's such an interesting woman. And she's got this really cool, interesting statue. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, she's holding a pomegranate in her hand. Uh, I had to look because for a long time, I was just like, she's holding like a ball or like, you know, the scepter-y, globey thing. But it turns out it's pomegranate. That's what she's holding in her hand. So that's my fun fact about that. We do also in Washington, D.C., we have... Uh, a Columbus Circle and a Columbus Memorial Fountain. So um, we are one of the, you know, I think still today, there's still somewhere in the ballpark about 150 Columbus statues in the United States, and we have one of them. The sculptor was a man named Lorado Taft, indeed a distant relative to William Howard Taft, who was at the dedication of this fountain. So I just want to bring it bring it around to Taft. But if you've been to Union Station, our beautiful train station uh, designed by Daniel Burnham, Right outside uh, in this big circle, there is uh, a memorial fountain. Um, it's sort of done right at this time, I think. It's like, you know, the early 1900s, right at this time where there's this, again, this renewed excitement for Columbus coming out of things like the Columbian uh, Exposition, uh, the Chicago World's Fair, which uh, Daniel Burnham had been a part of. Um, it's interesting. I don't want to spoil too much if you haven't seen it. Um, it's got sort of this interesting representation of the new world and the old world. Um, the fountain has not been on in the 10 years that I've lived in Washington, uh, D.C. I've never seen it functioning. I was just going to say fountain is a bit of a stretch because I've lived here on and off for almost 20 years and I have never once seen water in it. But Columbus does very much look like the prow of a ship. Like he's kind of positioned as like moving forward like the prow of a ship. And there's three flagpoles at the fountain to represent the three ships that he sailed in the original voyage. Um, but the original plan was not to put something to Columbus there. They had this big plan for Union Station and they had this circle and there was a very different fountain plan but the Knights of Columbus stepped in and did a hard press lobbying on it. So in 1907, uh, Congress approved um, this particular statue or this particular fountain. Uh, and I'll put a couple of these in the show notes too, but like the dedication of this Columbus Memorial was one of the biggest events I think I've ever seen in Washington, D.C., the fanfare. And again, it just sort of blows my mind because he's not really in American history an important American figure. It's mm -hmm. just sort of crazy to me. Um, that there is sort of all this pomp and circumstance, but we do, at least at the time of this recording, still have a statue to Christopher Columbus in Washington, D.C. Yes, we do. Um, that's our Columbus. We also, also is worth mentioning, Columbus gets buried in about four different places. Um, he, about 25% of him is buried in Spain, in the cathedral, very close to where Isabella gave him the go-ahead and to start his um, uh, journey no word on what 25% of him. It's not clear, but it is buried in the cathedral in Seville. There is also a rumor that part of him is in Hispaniola, um, but uh, some of him, they, there's a rumor that it went back to Italy or went to Italy for the first time, if you don't believe he's from Italy. Um, but yeah. I don't know. You can't, you can't write it at that time if you couldn't write it. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I know. He's out there speaking Spanish and Castilian and all this other stuff, Portuguese. Yeah, we have, he seems to have been a bit of a polyglot. Like he seems to have been able to speak a bunch of different languages, which was not unusual back then, like Latin and they're all Latin languages. So they all can, they're related, but he doesn't seem to have had, we don't have anything in his hand in Italian, which is not a great indicator. He seems to have been very fluent in Spanish um, and Portuguese and Castilian. Uh, so yeah, that's Columbus um, trash human. 
really important though. He's not one of those people that I feel like we, um, he's an important symbol, not necessarily for his like personhood. He's not necessarily important as a man, but as sort of the symbol of what he represents and as, uh, the sort of groundbreaking for what came after him. I feel like that's going to be very important, but, uh, he did not believe the earth was flat and, uh, he did not, you can't discover something that isn't, that is already there. Those are my big takeaways from it for everybody. I love it. You really, you really illuminated a lot for me. And I, there's so much I think I'm going to marinate on after we've recorded this. Um, not the least of which, again, is just sort of how this particular person gets so wrapped up and enmeshed in the American myth and the American kind of mythology. Um, yes. So it's, it's just fascinating to me. And it would have uh, been so yeah. much different if he'd had like a woman with him. Like Isabella tried to be, you know, a moderating force, but yet she didn't go. So he had literally no women, uh, Spanish women on the voyage. No one to be like, hey, you know what, dude, maybe this isn't the right way to go. Who, who knows what could have been. Excellent. Well, that is, I think, a great addition to our October episode of podcast. We do have a couple more podcasts coming at you this month. We're going to be talking about death and cemeteries and some hauntings. So we've got some really fun, spooky stuff. If you are local or close to the area, you're going to be in town this month. We are offering pretty much every night our scandal tours, ghost tours, our true crime kind of tragic tale tours. So this is like we're getting into perfect fall weather. We're doing small group mass tours. So please uh, join us with three tours by foot. Um, you can also support our podcast in a lot of different ways. First of all, like and subscribe and review. We love seeing your feedback on the podcast. It helps make us better. And your subscription numbers are really important to us. So please be sure to subscribe. You can always email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram at tourguidetellall or on Twitter at tourguidetell. Uh, let us know what you're thinking about the podcast. Send us questions. Uh, we love to hear from you. We are so, so, so appreciative of our wonderful patrons. Uh, you can be a patron for as little as a couple dollars a month. You can get access to special episodes, videos, previews, discounts in, a, in our tour guide tell all shop to get your tour guide tell all merchandise um <laughs> actually i think we're gonna have to introduce some new swag because one of our wonderful supporters today was just telling me how much he loved his inez milholland stickers and he suggested some other great women that we should add stickers of so i think we're gonna have to add some new merch but our wonderful patrons we're so supportive and you can be a patron too so uh consider that they're getting some a lot of uh some a lot of really fun behind the scenes later on in the month uh deaths in the capital and spies so stay tuned for all that stuff lots of good stuff <laughs> thank you guys so much we'll talk to you soon thank you bye